0: You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let's open our Bibles to the Scripture reading this afternoon. Exodus 12, verses 17 to 28. Celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month, you are to eat bread made without yeast, from the evening of the 14th day until the evening of the 21st day. For seven days, no yeast is to be found in your houses. And whoever eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel, whether he is an alien or native-born. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. And Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. Not one of you shall go out the door of his house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians... He will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway, and He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as He promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, What does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians, and the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Beloved Congregation of Christ Jesus, Last week we were looking at Lord's Day 35 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And in connection with that, we looked at what the Bible says about corporate worship, about the worship of the church. Well, today we're going to continue looking at worship, building on Lord's Day 35, but this time at what we call family worship or family devotions. And this connects as well with our home visit theme this year, which as I mentioned last time is improving worship in our homes. And since we realize that not everybody has a family with which to do worship in their home, next week we'll conclude this mini-series of instructional sermons with something that applies to all of us, every single one, our individual worship or devotions. That brings me to something I need to do right at the beginning, and that's convince those of you without families that what we're going to do here this afternoon is still worthy of your attention. I can imagine that some of you are thinking, I'm single. I'm probably never getting married. Why should I be interested in family worship? Or perhaps some of you are thinking, I'm widowed. My children are all grown up. Family worship? It's not relevant for me. Well, loved ones, if you are single and and not yet married... Perhaps someday you will be. One never knows. And when you are, then this teaching may be beneficial for you. And if you're one of the older members of the church, probably you have children or grandchildren that can be encouraged in the practice of family worship. And so a case can be made that this is relevant indeed for the entire congregation and not just for those of us who have families and young children. And even if you're convinced that it is irrelevant, can we indulge your patience for this afternoon? Because there are many families in our congregation. And as we're going to see, this is an important subject for them and for their children. Let me take you back a few years to 1997. In 1997... A small group of people prepared a report. The report was titled, The Role of Faith in the Lives of Young People in the Canadian Reformed Churches in the Fraser Valley. Perhaps some of you remember this. From what I understand, this was an enlightening project for our community. 312 young people were surveyed about their faith in connection with three things. Home, school, and church. Church one of the interesting points, the points that I found interesting anyway, was what that report revealed about the home front. Over 90% of the students claimed that their families read the Bible together every single day. 90%. And many of them, when asked what they would do similar to their own parents, they replied that they would definitely do devotions, they would do family Bible reading, and they would do prayer. Now undoubtedly, some of the students who answered those questions are sitting here among us now, and they have their own families and their, their own children. So let me ask you, where are we today, ten years later? If we were to do a survey today, would we find that 90% of families still read the Bible together every day? Have the students who claim that they would do exactly the same as their parents on this count, have they followed through? Whatever the case may be, it's a good time for us to review where we're at with our family worship. This afternoon I want to encourage those whose family worship is minimal or perhaps even non-existent to begin this practice and to make it a regular feature of their home life. And where it is regularly practiced, I want to encourage you to continue. Keep it up. And where possible, to improve. And then there are also those among us who are newly married or are planning to get married in the near future. I want to encourage you as a couple to commit yourselves to this practice. Let's begin with the biblical basis for family worship. And it's true that there is no direct and explicit command in the Bible for the members of a family to gather together regularly for worship. However, in the best of times, God's people have always practiced this And we can see that in the Scriptures as well. It can be argued that the Bible actually takes it for granted that families are going to do this. And so no direct command about this subject should really be necessary. Having said that, the Bible does have a lot to say about families and their worship. If we begin at the beginning, always a good place to begin, The very first worship that we read about in the Bible is family worship. Adam and Eve would have worshipped God together with their children. As time went on, corporate worship, the worship of God's people as as a church, was not always neatly distinguished from family worship. After all, the people of God in the Old Testament were not only spiritually a family, They were also physically a family. They were all related to one another, even though as time went on, it became more and more distant in some cases. However, by the time of Moses, the people of Israel had grown into a nation. Still, God had His eye on individual families, especially when it came to worship. You can see that in what we read from Exodus 12, about the Passover. Passover. The Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, as it was also called, was a family institution. It was an example of what we can call family religion. At the Passover, the children were to ask about the meaning of the ceremony, and then the explanation would come. Now, the Passover only took place once per year. But there are other passages in the Old Testament which show that family instruction in the faith was to be a regular item in the life of Israel. I invite you to open your Bible with me to Deuteronomy 6 and we'll read verses 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Of course, this is a a familiar passage. should be anyway, because we often hear it after the reading of the law. Notice here that family instruction was commanded by God. Israelites were to impress God's word on their children. They were to do this regularly says, when you lie down and when you get up. That's been understood by both Jews and Christians not to refer to doing family worship in bed, but to morning and evening family worship. And it doesn't matter where the family is, when you sit down, and when you walk along the road. We would say, when you're at home and when you're on holidays. Every day... And everywhere, God wanted His people to be teaching their children. Now somebody might say, but that was the Old Testament. This is Old Testament law. Well, if somebody would say that, then I would ask, is there any indication that things have changed on this score in the New Testament? In fact, as we'll we'll see in a moment, the New Testament actually reinforces what we read here in Deuteronomy. Now let's turn to another passage, Psalm 78. We'll read the first eight verses. as a title, A Masqueel of Asaph. O my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter hidden things, things from of old. What we have heard and known, what our fathers have told us. and would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. They would not be like their forefathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to Him. What we find here is a compelling poetic lesson on what we can call generational responsibility. In verse 3, we discover that previous generations have, in fact, Faithfully passed on the faith. Asaph knows about God. Someone taught him. His father. The fathers in Israel have told their sons and daughters about what God has done, about His power and His might. Then in verse four, Asaph and the people of God, they declare their commitment to do likewise. We will not hide them from their children. They're not going to hide what God has done, but rather declare it and teach it. And what is going to be the result of this teaching, according to Psalm 78? Our translation says, we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. Literally, it says the deeds of the praises of Yahweh. When we consider what God has done, the natural outcome as we reflect on what a great and awesome God we have and His great and wonderful salvation, the natural outcome is going to be rejoicing and singing praises for God in prayer and song. Verse 5 reminds us that God commanded fathers in the Old Testament to do this sort of thing. Why? Verse 6, so the next generation would know them know them, and pass the faith on to generations that haven't even been born yet. Family worship was to be a key component of the transmission of the faith, the passing on of the faith through the generations. Verse 7, then they would put their trust in God. Family worship is a key part in leading our children to faith in God, to believing in His promises, and most importantly of all, believing in the fulfillment of those promises in Jesus Christ. And then also, that they would not forget His deeds, but would keep His commands. Family worship also has something to do with sanctification. It's a key element in shaping godliness in the lives of our children. The end result would be that God's people would be faithful to Him, and that they would not stray. Then we turn over to the next book of the Bible, to Proverbs chapter 4. Listen, my sons, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. When I was a boy in my father's house, Still tender and an only child of my mother, he taught me and said, Lay hold of my words with all your heart. Keep my commands and you will live. Here we have the picture of an Israelite father teaching his children. Throughout the book of Proverbs, we find that the father is to have the central role in family religion. And we see it here too. The picture here is of a father patiently giving sound teaching or even doctrine to his sons. But elsewhere in the book of Proverbs, we do see the mother as well. Proverbs 1, verse 8, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Both parents are indeed involved in nurturing their children in godliness. However, it is true that the Bible in the in the Old and New Testament places the emphasis on the role of the father. And sometimes the instruction that a, a father gives to his children will have an element of admonition or discipline. We see that in passages like Proverbs 13, verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction, but a mocker does not listen to rebuke. 15, verse 5. A fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. Now it's true that these passages are very broad, and they don't necessarily speak about some kind of formal family worship, but they do give us some general principles regarding the roles of the members of the family. And we can take those general principles and we can apply them to family worship. The children are to receive instruction. They're the ones who are going to be taught and led. The father is to be the main figure in giving that instruction. And the mother is there too. She's also involved. She's in a supporting role. At appropriate moments, she also gives instruction and she supports and she reinforces what her husband teaches. Turning to the New Testament, we find that what we learn from the Old Testament is indeed reinforced. Ephesians 6, verse 4, Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Notice, first of all, in line with what we were looking at from the Old Testament, Paul puts this responsibility on the father. Fathers are to bring up their children in the training and instruction of the Lord. Fathers are not to exasperate their children, or more literally, to provoke their children to wrath. Well, how how might they do that? How might they provoke their children to wrath? Well, the Old Testament background of the word that's used there is telling. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, That word is used quite often for provoking someone to anger with unrighteous behavior. If a child sees a parent who says one thing, but then blatantly and unrepentantly does another, what's going to happen? Most normal children will become angry at the hypocrisy that they're witnessing. So Paul is saying, you fathers, strive to have your deeds match your words. Otherwise, what will happen is your children will become bitter and they'll become angry. And worst of all, they may even leave the faith altogether. Instead, Paul says, fathers are to bring up their children in the training and instruction or admonition of the Lord. Bring them up. That means to nourish and to nurture. It's the same word that's used in the previous chapter with regards to how husbands are to relate to their wives. Husbands nourish and they nurture their wives. And fathers nourish and nurture their children. This means that there's an intimate and direct relationship. Fathers are to be like shepherds for their children. Leading their children to the pastures of God's Word. Those green pastures where they can grow and mature in grace and knowledge. According to Paul, this nurturing takes place through two means. Here in Ephesians 6, verse 4. The first is through training. Training. Disciplined and structured instruction. There's regularity. There's a set format. For instance, a planned means of going through the Bible or following the teachings of the Bible with a catechism. The kind of instruction commanded here is not all over the place, but it's focused and it's well thought out. The Christian father, he takes care that his children are instructed properly in the faith. That's the first means, training. The second is instruction. You could also say admonition or warning. All those are legitimate translations of that word. The devil, the world, and our own flesh, they don't stop attacking us. And the Christian father has to be diligent To warn his children about these enemies. To warn his children about the tactics and strategies that the enemy uses. And his primary tool in giving these warnings and admonitions, this instruction, is going to be the Word of God. Same word for instruction. It's also used in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11. Paul is writing there about the people of Israel in the Old Testament and their experiences in the desert. And then in verse 11 he writes, "...these happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come." 1 Corinthians ten eleven. In other words, we use the Bible to instruct... And to warn and to admonish our children in the way of faith. And while fathers are to be the first line when it comes to the Christian nurture of families and children, we have to realize that this isn't always practical, not always realistic. In our day, we, sad, we see broken families. Even sadder, it takes place even in the church. However, this is nothing new. In Paul's day too, there were families that didn't have Christian fathers or even didn't have fathers at all. Take Timothy, for instance. We learn from 2 Timothy 1 that Timothy had a Christian mother and a Christian grandmother. Eunice was his mother's name. Lois was his grandmother. But we read nothing about a father or a grandfather. But in 2 Timothy 3, we we do indeed find that Timothy was raised in the Christian faith from the time he was a, a toddler or even younger. Well, who raised him in the Christian faith? Who nurtured him? Well, we can assume that it was his mother and his grandmother, Christian women, who did what they had to do. And that demonstrates that there can be flexibility in how our family worship is arranged, especially when we're dealing with exceptional circumstances. To be clear, the norm is for a father to be the leader. That's the way it should be. But in abnormal or exceptional situations, a mother may have to take the lead out of necessity. Since we're in the the letters to Timothy here, there's one more passage we should briefly consider, and that's 1 Timothy 5.8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty harsh words. Now if we must provide for our family in material things, which is really what that passage is directly about, how much more should we expect to provide for them in spiritual things? Things that are eternal. We're called by God to provide food for our families. Put a roof over their heads. Take care of them. That also includes the spiritual aspect of life. includes providing spiritual food for our children and for our families. You know, that calling also comes through in the form for the baptism of infants. We're all familiar with that. We hear it quite frequently. All of us who are parents, we promise to have our children instructed in the doctrine of the Bible, summarized in the confessions and taught here in this church. And one of the ways we keep that promise, not the only way, but one of the ways that we keep that promise is by being committed to a time of regular family worship. Now perhaps you find none of this, as we've been going through these Bible passages, you find none of that convincing. Let me try to persuade you then from wisdom. Is it wise to neglect the spiritual nurture of your children? To just let them find their own way? The book of Proverbs would tell us otherwise. Let me try to persuade you from love. Do you love your children? Do you want them to grow to be godly, Christian men and women? Do you want them to taste the sweetness of eternal communion with God through faith in Christ? Don't those things compel you to regular daily family worship. Wise parents who really love their children will not neglect this practice, but they will find every way possible to do family worship. So now we've surveyed what the Bible teaches about our topic. And what I want to do now is look at some of the practical aspects of family worship. First off, the elements of What are the parts of family worship? What should we be doing? Well, from Psalm 78 and other passages, we've seen that there are three elements that should be in place. Not hard to guess what they are. Prayer, Bible reading, and then connected with that would be instruction. And then also singing. You see, family worship doesn't have to be an imitation of corporate worship, what we do here in church. It's much simpler. It doesn't have to be elaborate. Just focus on those three things. Reading the Bible, and then discussing it and providing instruction from it. Focus on prayer and on singing. And with the singing, let me say that if you've got kids in elementary school, this is a great opportunity to practice their memory work with them every day. As for the, the, the length of family worship, it doesn't have to be long. 10, 15 minutes is adequate. And you know, it's better to have a short time of family worship every day than to try and do it once per week and spend two hours on it. Of course, none of this is written in stone, so so families are free to be flexible according to their circumstances. For instance, Maybe you have a family that relishes having long theological discussions that do stretch to two hours, and you want to do that every day. That's fine. The important thing is that family worship is practiced on a regular basis. And with respect to the leadership of family worship, we've already noted that the biblical norm is for the father to be taking the lead. However the father can delegate certain tasks in family worship. He can ask his children or his wife to read the Bible. He can ask them to pray. Even ask them to lead in singing if he's not a musical sort. Whatever may happen it always has to be clear that in a normal family situation the father is the spiritual leader. The father is the head of the household. That's a biblical principle. It doesn't gel well in in our world today. It doesn't fit well with what our world tells us. But the Bible teaches it. And that brings us to the challenges we face with family worship, and the biggest is our enemy, the devil. And Satan knows that he has the world. In that area, he doesn't need to put in a lot of effort to try and maintain his control and power. However, the church is one area where he needs to make a focused effort to undermine God's work. And he does that in a number of different ways. One of those is by attacking the stability and the integrity of our families. The enemy these are various strategies and tactics to destroy our families and by so doing to destroy the church and we can't expect to have a healthy church life if our families are experiencing spiritual disintegration if they're falling apart faithful god glorifying churches are built with the bricks and mortar of faithful god glorifying families And probably the biggest thing that Satan uses to chip away at the stability and integrity of our families is busyness. The busyness of our day and the way that time so easily escapes us. Now that can happen in all of our families. But those families where both parents are working out of the home need to be especially careful on this count. We need to take special care that the spiritual nurture of our families is not compromised by time spent out of the home. For all our families, family worship and spiritual nurture has to be right up at the top of our list of priorities almost as high a priority as regular attendance at church. And for those of us who have been raised in traditional Canadian Reformed homes, I think this may require us to think outside of the box a little bit. Because in the past, family worship was typically something that we did following supper. In the broader culture, families rarely eat together nowadays. We were driving through the states this past summer and we heard a public service announcement on the radio, some kind of organization encouraging families to eat together once per week. That's, that's sad, but it's the reality of the world in which we live and it spills over into the church. Hopefully not that much, but it does. There's no biblical command. Or principle indicating that families must eat together. However, we do find family worship in the Bible. And so if it's difficult for your family to eat together, it doesn't necessarily mean that family worship has to be abandoned. Rather, if we're serious about it, we have to be creative. Why not do family worship in the morning before everyone leaves? Or maybe do it in the evening when everyone is home again. Brothers and sisters, where there's a will, there's a way. Another obstacle to family worship can be the the telephone and the TV. TV needs to be turned off. Should be obvious. The telephone too. And if it isn't turned off, and it rings during your family worship, let it ring. There's nothing so important that it can't wait until after family worship. There are more challenges, but let me just mention one more. Programs. Programs in the church, or in the school community, or even in the broader community, they can be good. And they can be helpful. Having a Christian school is also an enormous blessing for which we can all be thankful. But all those things should never be regarded as a replacement or as a substitute for regular daily family worship. We can't think that because our kids go to a Christian school that we can ignore their spiritual nurture. Let the school take care of it. Or that because our kids go to Gems or Cadets or Little Lambs or whatever else, that that absolves us of the responsibility to do family worship. Like I said, all those things can be helpful. We're not knocking them. They can be good. They can supplement what goes on in the home. But they can never, ever be considered as replacements Finally, let's briefly consider the blessings of family worship. When fathers and mothers are seriously, serious about family worship, the family is more focused on glorifying God in daily life. God and His Word are constantly being put before their eyes and their ears. And more than that, most importantly of all, Christ is constantly being revealed through the instruction given in His Word. We're getting a steady diet of the gospel of our Savior. A diet we all need. And that can guard against nominalism. Against just being a Christian in name without really taking anything seriously. Now, it's not going to necessarily entirely prevent nominalism. But it will go a long way towards guarding against it. When children see that their parents are serious, when they say that, see that they are sincerely trying to serve the Lord and trying to teach His Word, when they see their parents rejoicing in the Lord, singing songs of praise, how can that not have a positive effect on them? It's going to be a big part of their spiritual nourishment Family worship is also a blessing for the church. When fathers and mothers shepherd the hearts of their children, when they're the front-line youth pastors, as they, they should be, the church is strengthened to worship and to serve her Lord. Again, just think of that practical matter of singing. Now, if we're regularly singing in our homes... And, and then also explaining to our children what we're singing and why we're singing. That goes a long ways towards bolstering and, and, and strengthening the singing that takes place in church. Then the children are equipped to sing with gusto and to sing with understanding. And God is glorified through that. There are more blessings that could be mentioned. And I provided a a list of some of those in the the liturgy sheet. Regular daily family worship is is like a fountain from which all kinds of benefits and blessings flow. There's also a, a list of resources there in the liturgy sheet. And I would especially draw your attention to the book mentioned there by Star Mead, Training Hearts and Teaching Minds. It's a great book a devotional book based on the Westminster Shorter Catechism, an excellent way to provide biblical teaching to school-aged children. Highly recommend it. One of the things we, we didn't do this afternoon was review the history of family worship in the Christian church. I'm not going to do that now here at the end either. Just let me tell you that family worship experienced a resurgence in the 1500s with the arrival of the Reformation. That had to do with a number of factors. One of them was the availability of Bibles in people's native tongues. It also had to do with the expanding network of schools and literacy. The Reformation, the churches of the Reformation, they capitalized on these things. They capitalized on the printing press and the spread of literacy. And they reintroduced family worship to God's people. Finally, Christian fathers could read the Bible. And they could read the Bible to their families. And they could provide instruction and leadership for them. And where it's been taken seriously, it's been an enormous blessing for Reformed churches and their families. So loved ones, let's not lose this important practice, but let's be committed to it. For the love of our children for the love of the Word of God, for the love of the God who saved us through Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, our Savior, we thank You for the instruction we could receive from Your Holy Word this afternoon again. We praise You that You care deeply about us and our families and our children. Please bless the families of our church with faithfulness to you. We pray that fathers in our midst would faithfully read your word to their children, that they would teach the truths of your word, that they would pray with their children. We pray that mothers would likewise faithfully bring up the children that you have given. They would do that in the fear of your name. We pray that you would bless our families so that we would all you giving praise and honor to You, rejoicing in the God of our salvation. Help all of us who are parents to be faithful to the promises we made when our children were baptized into Your name. They belong to You. And we pray that You would help us to shepherd and nurture them. Because of Christ, we pray that You would forgive us for all our failures as parents. We ask that You would give us more grace with Your Holy Spirit. And help us. Please hear our prayer. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.